Please turn with me to Acts 21. We'll be looking at the last few verses of Acts 21 and then the majority of Acts 22. This is the first of six defenses that Paul will make concerning the charges that are brought against him. This one immediately to the crowd that brought the charges against him in the first place. And so as we go to God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask for his help with it this morning. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, help us to understand it. We are thick-headed very often when it comes to understanding the truth of your word, mainly when it comes to understanding our own sin in light of your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show that to us, that we would be convicted of our sin, that we would repent and turn to you but also that we would gain deeper and deeper knowledge that we might understand you more and that we might know how we ought to live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we read about Paul being arrested in Jerusalem, something that had been building for some time in the text as we've gone through the book of Acts. You kind of had this tension building and then last week in our text, the, the tension just kind of released, and it ends up where Paul is taking a beating there in Jerusalem near the temple. Today, that we're going to even see that the Roman authorities, the ones that actually saved him from being beat to death, probably, they thought he was this uh, escaped leader of a cult. Uh, we'll talk more about that. A false prophet who had plans to attack the Roman soldiers and save Jerusalem. Of course, Paul had no plans to do so, but it did remind me as I read through this and looked in the news and things that are going on today, 40 years ago today, actually, the Jonestown Massacre took place. 900 people were killed by a cult leader who encouraged them all to commit suicide. It's hard to call it suicide at that point. Uh, 900 murders. Jim Jones was the name of that leader. He had a movement that ultimately ended again in nearly a thousand people dying, and all in the name of finding some utopia, escaping the evil world, and creating this perfect existence for themselves, with him, of course, as the leader of that. Um, he isn't the first cult leader to make those claims, won't be the last, and they were happening even back in Paul's time. To the Jews there that had wanted Paul arrested and who were beating him, it must have seemed like Paul was making those kinds of claims. Paul had an outrageous conversion story, as we're going to read again today, outrageous in that it's just crazy the way that the Lord went to Paul. Not unbelievable, it is definitely a real thing, but it is outrageous. And he claimed that the Gentiles should be allowed into the kingdom of God. Of course, Paul did that, and that, of course, the Jews didn't like that, and that admittance into the kingdom of God had nothing to do with being a good Jew. And that really bothered them. This was a hard message for the Jews to accept, so they attempted to kill Paul and likely would have done that, again, had it not been for the Roman officials there. So as we start out our text today, Paul is going to get an opportunity to defend himself in front of this massive crowd even though it would eventually cause him his life on down the line, the message is not going to change. Paul's message, that is. He's going to use this again as an opportunity to preach 
the gospel. I think it's an important passage for us today because it gives us a very vivid picture of how we can be perceived as the church and how we shouldn't change our message just because of those perceptions. It also shows us the faithfulness of Paul, the faithfulness ultimately that we should emulate, and then, of course, the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus, who is the one that threw Paul off his course in the first place and got all this started. So as we look at this passage, it's divided into three parts that we'll look at. Paul's request to speak, Paul's message to the crowd, and then the crowd's rejection of him. And so with that, let's look at the text, Acts 21, starting at verse 37. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Acts 21, starting at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given them him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And then there was a great hush. He addressed them in Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering a person or to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on the way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. To those who were with, now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What should I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The Lord of our fathers appointed you to, to know his will and to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. 
And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Upon this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. And the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. And those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he had realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he, was, that he had bound him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So I mentioned Jim Jones in the beginning. He was the very picture of evil, if you've ever read or watched anything about him. In the beginning of his life, and even the beginning of his time in public, he may have even had good intentions, but make make no mistake, he was a self-labeled communist. He thought Karl Marx hung the moon, and his theology was very far from biblical. But his views on racial integration and caring about people who were different from himself, had some merit. He sought racial reconciliation in the neighborhoods near where he lived there in Indianapolis. He comforted black families who were being persecuted, and he also counseled white families in attempted reconciliation. But in the 60s in America, he made very few friends doing this. He built a following, and this following thought that he was their savior, and he developed the savior complex and led many to believe that he was the answer to their problems, the only answer to their problems, which led them to their deaths. Make sure you understand this. Anytime we follow after something that isn't Jesus Christ, we are following something that will lead us to our doom. Every time. For the Jews that Paul was preaching to, they were following a righteousness that was earned by their religion. And simply for the fact that they were Jews. They thought that just being a Jew made them special. They couldn't dream of anyone else being able to obtain the thing that they had obtained just by being born. And this is why they rejected Paul. It's a question that we have to ask ourselves regularly as well, particularly as we do ministry in a fallen world, because we will come in contact with folks who are nothing like ourselves at all and have situations that are very difficult and we'll have to be able to offer them the only hope that we can jesus christ not ourselves i think it's important to make that distinction before we get into the text today looking at the first point paul's request to speak look with me at verses 37 and 38 as paul was about to be brought into the barracks he said to the tribune may i say something to you and he said do you know greek 
Are you not the Egyptian then who stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So, Paul goes into the barracks. Remember, Paul was being beaten there in the outer court of the temple. And the, the Roman soldiers came in and saved him and they brought him into the barracks. And now they're questioning him. And Paul says, can I be allowed to speak? Probably speaking in Greek. And this man, this uh, Roman soldier says, you know Greek? Are you not that guy, that, that crazy terrorist guy that we have been looking for? Uh, the Romans themselves saw themselves as the picture of civility. If you weren't Roman, you were a barbarian. So being a Roman meant that you were civilized. And speaking Greek was part of that being civil. Someone who's civil speaks Greek. Everything else is not a good thing. And so the fact that Paul spoke Greek to them was a plus. And the second question then had to do with the revolt that had happened several years previous to this. There's a little bit of history on this. This Egyptian man had gathered a following, had led his group out to the Mount of Olives where he was going to stage some sort of messianic overthrow, very much similar to what the Jews had been waiting for, right? They had been waiting for their Messiah to ride in on a white horse and overthrow their captors. And when Jesus came and he wasn't that guy, they've been waiting for that ever since. And so there was a lot of these Messiah types that have risen up to try to overthrow the most powerful government in the world. And every time Rome did what they do when those attempts happened, they squashed them with their military might. But apparently this Egyptian escaped, this false prophet. And so as they bring Paul in, they think that this is the one that they're maybe looking for. It would make sense. He came back. The Jewish people see him. They're trying to out him as the, as the terrorists just so that they, they themselves can stay out of trouble and stay on Rome's good side. But of course, Paul isn't that guy. We've been reading about what he's been doing over the last several years so it wasn't him so paul tells him who he is he says i'm a jew from tarsus in cilicia which at the time this city of tarsus had one of the few major universities in the world it probably rivaled alexandria or athens as that type of city paul says that it is no obscure city he's trying to say that he's an educated person from an important place and he's here to defend himself the Roman tribune saw no harm in allowing him to be able to speak to his accusers. And so that's what goes on. Just a few things here. Something that we'll continue to see with Paul as he defends himself. He's going to do so five more times in the rest of this book, which is not very much. Six chapters left. So Paul is constantly having to defend himself for the rest of this book. Something that we have to see uh, about Paul is that the way that he behaves. It's something that we always have to be ready to do ourselves. And we have to, when we do so, defending ourselves, that is, we have to be ready to bring honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ, not ourselves, which Paul easily could have done. We'll see that as Paul defends himself, I think he gives us some insight as to how we should be doing that as well. He does not wax academically, on his detractors, he simply tells his story, what went on in his life, what led to the change. He keeps the Lord Jesus in the forefront, not his own works, but the works of Christ. And I think that's helpful for us as we make defenses in our own lives. 
Not that we're going to be drug in front of a Roman tribune anytime, but we're constantly being asked to give a reason for our faith all the time. And it's important for us to be able to put Jesus at the forefront of that defense. And that brings me to the next point, Paul's message to the crowd. So first, let us remember what the charges were that were brought against Paul. You can look there at verses 28 through 29 of chapter 21 if you want to look at that. He was accused of forsaking Moses, essentially. He was accused of tossing Moses out. The law, the temple, the people of God, all of those things, throwing them out. He was accused of defiling the temple. He was accused then of bringing one of his Gentile friends into the temple. Remember, Paul was going through a purification ceremony at the time, and he had been accused of bringing his Gentile friend Trophimus into the temple, which would have been a death sentence for his friend. So this is Paul's defense against those charges. And notice when he goes to defend himself against these charges to a Hebrew audience, what does he do? He changes his language to Hebrew, something he would have been fluent in, again, helping to show that the charges against him have no merit. Look with me at verses 2 through 5 of chapter 22. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest of the whole council of others can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So what is he saying here? He's reminding them of his place. Before he was converted, he was born in Tarsus, but he was brought up in Jerusalem. He was probably 10 or 15 years younger than Jesus. No one knows exactly when he was born. No one knows exactly when Jesus was born for that matter. But there was probably a 10 or 15 year difference between them. But he was probably there in Jerusalem when Jesus' ministry was going on. So at least he had some awareness of this. He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a very important figure in the Jewish religion at the time. He was kind of like a celebrity rabbi, if there were such a thing. He was a member of the Pharisees. He was actually in charge of one of the groups of Pharisees. And Paul was sitting at his feet. So he was training then to become a Pharisee as well. So Paul, a Pharisee, a Jew training at the feet of celebrity rabbi, he would have been a zealous follower of the law, a zealous follower of Jewish tradition to the exact letter. No one was doing it better than the Pharisees were as far as the Jewish tradition was concerned. Remember Jesus' problem with the Pharisees was their reliance upon their own righteousness. They believed themselves to have a righteousness that surpassed Anyone and everyone. And so Paul would have been right there with them. Very pious. Very traditional. Very Jewish. By all standards. So much so that 
When Christ died and was resurrected and his followers began to spread across the city of Jerusalem and all of Judea after his resurrection, Paul was right there amongst the Pharisees persecuting those believers. He was an avid persecutor of Christians in the early days of the church. He said, says that he had them put to death. He had them thrown in prison. He was actually on his way to Damascus with a bunch of letters. These letters basically summoning these Christians back to Jerusalem to be punished. And he was on his way to do more of the same type of persecution. And that is when he encountered our Lord face to face. But essentially, what he did here is he said, look, your charges against me are horrible because I'm a better Jew than you are. I, if there's a, such a thing as a really good Jew, I am like at the top of the list. And you're accusing me of not being Jewish? That's silly. Verses 16 or 6 through 16, I won't read again, but you can look there. He basically recounts his story of conversion. We saw that in Acts chapter 9, the actual story taking place. And here he just recounts that story almost verbatim. We don't forget that he came face to face with our risen Lord during this encounter. Paul's calling came directly from our Lord Jesus himself, not through someone else. He didn't find out that Jesus was interested in calling him from someone else. Jesus came right to him, tossed him off his horse, blinded him, and said, you're going to follow me now. And Paul did it. He was compelled to follow his Lord. And this is where he derived his authority as an apostle. It's important because not only is he establishing himself as an important Jewish figure, and having Jewish authority, but he's also establishing himself as having some authority in the church as well. He's tying those two things together too, is he not? When he went into Damascus, who did he meet? Ananias. And how does Paul describe him? A devout Jew. Ananias, this devout Jewish man, who's also a Christian, baptized Paul, welcoming him into the new covenant. The Old Testament Jew, Paul, is now a New Testament Christian because of Jesus Christ who brings the Old and the New together. And because of that, Ananias can say to Paul, you will be a witness for him, Jesus, to everyone, not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles also. Fulfilling the words that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob concerning their own nation. That they would be a blessing not only to themselves, which the Jews had forgotten, but also to the whole world. And then you read 17 through 20, 21. Paul recounts his specific, specific calling to the Gentiles who says, or who the Lord says are Far away. He's going to send him far away to the Gentiles. This reminds me of the Lord saying in John 10 that there are others, other sheep, who are not of this fold and that we must get them also. Paul is going out to those Gentiles. He was the instrument for this. So understand what's going on. Paul has been vetted 
by the top Jewish authorities as a Jew, the top Christian authorities as a Christian, and Christ himself as an apostle, if anyone has credentials, this man has them. And as he stands before them, he stands before them as one that is above reproach, completely innocent of the charges that they have brought against him. There's no charge that they could bring against him that would be valid other than the charge of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Like I said last week, we, as Christians, as the church, want to make sure that the only charge that can be brought against us that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And that we can and if we can do that, we'll have nothing to be ashamed of. Turn with me to first Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. Starting at verse eight, this is the Apostle Peter talking about something similar here. This idea of being persecuted for doing good. This is Peter's take on it. First Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason or for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you have, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. Does this not sum up what we're reading from Paul right here? Is he not handling them with gentleness and respect? The apostles, other followers of Christ in the time, were living testimonies to this truth that, Peter's, that Peter is speaking about. And consider Stephen, who Paul mentions, who was preaching the good news. He was preaching the good news and asking hard questions of the Jewish authorities. So they brought him in. They had a court where he preached an incredible sermon, convicted them even more, and they drug him out and they stoned him because he ruffled some feathers. He wasn't doing anything illegal. It was the truth that bothered them. Sometimes, just by doing good will be considered to be a threat. Look no further than our Lord Himself for the perfect example of that. Look at verse 18 there in 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins of the righteous, for the un, or once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive 
in the Spirit. Christ did good and was hated for it, was he not? And then took all of our bad, even while we were hating him. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He who was innocent took the beatings, the ridicule, the death that was owed to me, and I get the prize that only he deserves. It's pretty incredible. When we think it is difficult to live in a sinful world, just consider the one who gave all so that we could do that. We are like those that are in the crowd there that day against Paul. That brings me to the third point, the crowd's rejection. Verses 22 and 23 of Acts 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. So this time, I find it interesting, Luke definitely did this on purpose. This time Paul wasn't there to hold their cloaks for them, so their cloaks fell to the ground and all the dust was kicked up. And you have this big ruckus going on. They were getting ready to stone Paul. They weren't concerned about someone watching their cloaks at all. They wanted Paul dead, and it didn't matter. But they wouldn't get their wish. The Romans saved him. And they themselves were going to torture him to get information out of him because from their perspective, they're just trying to keep the peace. But then they realized that they were dealing with a Roman citizen, and it was unlawful to try a citizen without a trial, and they were presumed innocent until proven guilty. And so at this point then, Paul is going to appeal to the highest court and he's going to begin his trek to Rome at this point, which we'll begin talking about more next week. For us to be effective ministers to this culture that is actively rejecting Jesus at every turn, just like this crowd is, they were given a good defense, but yet they threw it out anyway. In order for us to be effective ministers in this culture, we first have to understand that it wasn't long ago that we were just like them, actively rejecting the Lord of glory, actively doing so. Just like the crowds who shouted, crucify him, these crowds shout at Paul, away with this Christian. He should not be allowed to live. What had he done? Nothing. And we could easily be the ones shouting right there with them were it not for the Lord himself who delivered us. Jesus is the one who delivered the one was that that's on trial here. Was not Paul right on the other side of the fence just a few chapters ago? And the Lord himself said, no, you're going to follow me now. In fact, the only people the Lord ever saves are his enemies. He never saves anyone that is currently loving Him and following Him. He only saves His enemies. Since every one of us were enemies of God, dead in our trespasses, until He made us alive. 
So when we minister, brothers and sisters, when we minister to a lost world, we minister as former enemies of the Lord that we now worship. And we present the terms of surrender to those who currently stand in his opposition. That's what we're giving them. And what are those terms? Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The terms are not, look at me, act like me, because if that were the case, there'd be no hope at all. But instead, we bid them to call upon Jesus, the only one who can offer them hope. In conclusion, church, let us be ones who willingly stand in defense for our faith and stand in defense of our Lord who stands for us. And let us be above reproach in this calling, all the while calling the world to faith and repentance in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we were indeed once your enemies, but you called us even while we were yet sinners. You died for us so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could be called the righteousness of God, so that we could have any place a place in eternity beside you, something that none of us deserve, but something that you have done for us because you loved us from the foundations of the earth. So, Lord, help us to be ones who offer a defense, who are always seeking to tell others of what you have done, telling our story, just like Paul did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.